One of my favorite Seinfeld episodes is titled The Boyfriend. This classic season three episode parodies the JFK assassination, introduces the infamous Vandalay Industries, and identifies for us Jerry's favorite explorer of all time, Ferdinand Magellan. The show about nothing sneaks that last fact into a conversation between Jerry and his best friend George Costanza, who counters by proclaiming that his favorite explorer is Spaniard Hernando de Sota, the discoverer of the Mississippi. To which Seinfeld responds, oh, like they wouldn't have found that anyways. Discovery is at the heart of exploration, and the ability to travel into the unknown has served as a siren's call throughout the entirety of human history. But not everyone is destined to explore. The website Thought Catalog characterizes the world through four distinct archetypes. Explorers, builders, negotiators, and directors. The divisions come from work by biological anthropologist Dr. Helen Fisher, who determined that the whole of humanity has just four brain systems. The difference in archetypes comes from which chemical is behind the brain's wheel. That's right, the Pixar film Inside Out is far closer to reality than you originally imagined. Rather than joy and sadness fighting for dominance, our brains are primarily driven by dopamine, testosterone, estrogen, or serotonin. If you're curious about your own lead chemical, the doctor's test is freely available at the website anatomyoflove.com and only takes about 15 minutes to complete. My own results weren't as clear as I would have liked, as I scored in the 70th percentile for three of the four options. Accordingly, I was identified as a builder the supposed pillars of society who tend to be driven first and foremost by serotonin. Builders tend to be cautious, calm, social, and trusting of facts, something that well describes anyone who has chosen to live out their life as a high school history teacher. Colin Powell and Queen Elizabeth can be counted among the famous examples of builders. Interestingly, the only personality type that I was completely disassociated from was that of the explorer archetype. The study claims that these individuals are driven by dopamine, the chemical that works overtime in order to push us past our fears, exciting us with a rush of adrenaline. These individuals tend to be creative, spontaneous, daring, and independent, and their innate charisma tends to push them into leadership positions. Was Jerry Seinfeld right that someone other than DeSoto would have eventually discovered the Mississippi? Of course he was. After all, there were plenty of people already living within the Mississippi River Valley long before DeSoto had become aware that there was a continent on this side of the world. But by the same logic, wouldn't someone have eventually sailed around the world if Magellan had been driven by serotonin rather than by dopamine? The glory and greatness of the world's foremost explorers is not necessarily their accomplishment, but in the fact that they managed to accomplish it before anyone knew that it was even possible. They exemplified David Livingston, the great European explorer of the African continent, who said that if you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. 
I want men who will come if there's no road at all. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the adventures of the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. Episode number one, No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. The Truman Show, a movie starring Jim Carrey, tells the story of a corporation taking over a child's life for the expressed purpose of inserting him into a reality TV show. The boy grew up authentically interacting with actors who played his parents, friends, and love interests. The largest challenge in maintaining the ruse was in ensuring that Truman Burbanks remained confined within a studio oblivious to his incarceration. Towards the beginning of the film, the director of the fictional show voices over a montage showcasing the producer's efforts at ensuring that Truman was unwilling to test his boundaries. My personal favorite moment in the montage is when he raises his hand as a young boy to excitedly inform his teacher that he wants to be an explorer when he grows up. This boy's desire to discover represented an existential threat to the show. Thus, the teacher quickly pulls down a map to show him that, quote, unfortunately, everything has already been discovered. The map shown to Truman may have appeared complete, but the maps found in Ferdinand Magellan's era were known to be incomplete, or terra incognita. Mapmakers were fully aware that there was more out there, but universally struggled at how to identify the unknown. The result was a curious decision to insert fantastical monsters into the margins, including dragons, basilisks, and serpents that were shown to destroy seaworthy vessels. The message was carefully designed to caution those who felt the itch to explore. I clearly don't run off of dopamine, There are quite a few real dangers that would have prevented me from being the first one to circumnavigate the globe. But real dangers weren't enough to prevent the intrepid from risking their lives to help fill in the map. Thus, they had to create fictional threats to hold back thrill-seekers. The images adorning these early maps are fantastic, but they aren't entirely imaginary. At the time, there was a strongly held belief that every animal on the earth had an equivalent in the ocean. Moreover, the Bible was held up by these people as an undeniable fact, allowing for demons to be shown among the creatures that had become known by the moniker of sea lions, sea horses, and sea pigs. David Laville interviewed Dory Klein of the Norman B. Leventhal Map Center to tell us that the fantastical creatures appear in a variety of forms. Some resemble familiar figures, like the Muppets. Some are scarier than that. The figures that appear on a 1525 edition of Polotomy's Geographica, for example, give Klein the heebie-jeebies. 
I saw a little man standing upright with horns, and he's cooking a woman, and she has this blithely complacent expression on her face, because this was a woodcut, and it was very hard to convey detail. So it was simultaneously horrifying and slightly amusing, she says. It was a jolting reminder that all of the monsters that you see embedded in these maps really were genuinely scary to the people who were looking at them. By the time of Magellan's voyage in 1519, Christopher Columbus had already completed his four journeys across the Atlantic Ocean. The dissemination of Amerigo Vespucci's map had already led to the name of the Americas being brandished around for the first time on parchment. Yet the New World remained a mystery. Foremost among the thoughts of Europe's finest was how to unlock the new lands for the advantage of the European kings and queens who funded these far-flung explorations. The key to realizing that economic boon was to maximize the profit of labor through the institution of slavery. But that process wouldn't begin until 1526, four years after Ferdinand Magellan's ships would return to the Iberian Peninsula, proving beyond a doubt for the first time ever that the world was indeed round. Magellan was born in Portugal in 1480, a son of nobles and inheritor of privilege so great that he was serving as a royal page by the time he turned 12. His parents passed away at this point in his life, leading him to attend the prestigious boarding school known as Queen Leonora's School of Pages. His studies included detailed classes on mapmaking, astronomy, and celestial navigation. Sea power was of the utmost importance to Portugal, as the small nation regularly ran afoul of their larger Iberian neighbor, Spain. Portugal had managed to establish its independence from Castile in 1143, but had always suffered from Little Brother Syndrome. Historian Pierre Barat claims that the two Iberian peoples are distinctly different identifying the Portuguese as noble souls who are more sensitive to the charm of women and children, while the Spaniards are described as a proud and exalted people ready to violently sacrifice themselves for their dignity. Oliveira Martins, another Portuguese historian, wrote that the Portuguese possess a nobility that differs from the fury of their Spanish neighbors. He distinguishes Spanish history as tragic and ardent, calling his own nation's past as more authentically epic. The competition between the two seafaring nations took an unexpected turn on January 7, 1494, when Pope Alexander VI divided the world in half via the Treaty of Tordesillas. Pope Alexander was secular, wealthy, fond of mistresses, and most importantly, Spanish. Spain's monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella had sought out a ruling from the papal council in order to protect the discoveries of Christopher Columbus. This was despite the fact that few, including Columbus himself, understood exactly what he had accidentally stumbled upon. The monarchs had a lot of pull with Rome, 
having successfully wrested the control of the Spanish Inquisition from the Pope's hands, as well as having initiated the expulsion of all Spanish Jewish citizens two years prior. Portugal was the only other sea power in Europe who could quickly launch expeditions across the Atlantic, and thus represented the most immediate threat to Spain's position as the discoverers of the New World. But Portugal had no need for the Americas, as they had already dedicated themselves to achieving a route to India via the circumnavigation of Africa. Prince Henry the Navigator had orchestrated his nation's entrance into the Age of Discovery in the 1400s. As a young man, he had fought against Arabs, learning their trade routes, their science and map-making, and most of all, their navigational techniques. With the crown's finances behind them, Portuguese explorers traveled south and established a colonial foothold throughout the western coast of Africa, creating a trading post empire. Rather than invading African lands, which remained an impossibility for European powers at this point in history, Portugal seized lightly populated islands, including the Canary Islands, Cape Verde, Madreira, and the Azores. The University of Hawaii informs us that merchants used these Atlantic outposts as debarkation points for subsequent journeys. The most impressive of which was the fort at Elmina in 1482. I'll go far more in detail upon the history of Elmina in a later episode, but for now I will point out two things. First, that it is in modern-day Ghana, and secondly, that its involvement in the trade of African slaves and gold funded Vasco da Gama's mission to round the Cape of Good Hope in order to continue traveling up the eastern coast of Africa. After securing knowledge from far more advanced Arab sailors, da Gama, sailing beneath the flag of Portugal, annihilated the Middle Eastern fleets that he encountered, securing a monopoly over the lucrative spice trade. Historian Mark Newcup claims that da Gama is as controversial of a figure as Columbus, just one whom we know little about. Newcup writes that he was one of the more heavy-handed explorers, one who was willing to take what he wanted and get his way at the point of a cannon. The few personal writings that we do have paint da Gama as a disturbed and violent man, even compared to the standards of his time. As proof of the assertion, historian Sanjay Subrahama tells us about one horrific incident during which da Gama intercepted a ship carrying Muslim families returning from a religious pilgrimage to Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Da Gama locked up the passengers in the ship's hole, and despite pleas from his own crew members not to do it, he set the pilgrim ship ablaze, slowly and unnecessarily extinguishing the lives of hundreds of innocent men, women, and children. Da Gama remains one of the most famous of all sailors, yet few ever learn about the violent nature that underpinned his discoveries. Subrahamium believes that this was because the Portuguese needed a national hero to rival Columbus 
telling us that the Portuguese made a very deliberate attempt in the 16th century to build up da Gama as their Columbus. This included the commissioning of a 12-part epic poem, which portrays the Portuguese explorer as a Greek-style hero, rivaling not only Columbus, but Achilles and Odysseus. While the Portuguese didn't rule over an immense landmass, their strategic holdings of islands and coastal ports gave them near unrivaled control of nautical trade routes and a global empire of trading posts during the 15th century. Historian Howard French notes that as the commercial linkages blossomed between Portugal and Africa, a newfound prosperity washed over what had previously been a marginal European country a prosperity that would become the very mother's milk of modernity. Competition between Spain and Portugal threatened that wealth, and soon the Pope became involved, beckoning diplomats from both seafaring nations to assemble in the Spanish town of Tordesillas. There were a couple of problems from the outset. First, they weren't meeting on neutral ground. Secondly, they had no idea what Columbus had discovered. Third, they didn't have a neutral mediator. And lastly, they had no way of rejecting the agreement put down by the man who each nation believed to be the holy vessel of their god on earth. The imaginary line of demarcation that came out of the negotiations traveled from the north to the south pole, separating the known world into the east and west. Spain would gain control of all territories in the Americas, the only known part of which were a few Caribbean islands, while Portugal would maintain control over its trading post empire that extended to India and China. Because they drew an imaginary line without knowing what was out there, the Portuguese were able to later claim control over Brazil, whose eastern tip just slightly dips onto the eastern side of the divide. Portugal's discovery of the Amazon was a happy little accident, as Pedro Alvarez Cabral was attempting to pass through the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, but became hopelessly blown off course towards the Americas. Contemporary belief is that Spain got the better of the deal, allowing for the creation of a massive new world empire that fueled their economy for the next three centuries but Portugal was viewed as the original winner of the deal. In fact, Howard French would argue that even the insane scope of the Americas was worth what Portugal retained control over. He writes that Lisbon secured control of much of Asia, which is conventionally assumed to have been Europe's greatest preoccupation all along, as well as perhaps the biggest prize in the Age of Discovery. Yet Africa generated as much as twice the amount in real returns for Lisbon than even the long-coveted trade in spices and early textiles with the East did. French introduces us to historian Philippe Fernandez Armesto's contemporary analogy, which likened late 15th century Portugal to the economically weak nations of the so-called developing world today, 
which drill in deep waters offshore in the desperate hope of a breakthrough discovery of oil or gas that can alleviate their poverty and lift them onto a more promising path for the future. Portugal's discovery of African gold would merely constitute the first prize in a series of dramatic payoffs. It was superseded by a lucrative new trade in African slaves, and then by a boom in Portuguese sugar production on islands located just off of the African continent. Meanwhile, the Spanish Empire, which saw a massive die-off of the indigenous population, was forced to purchase African slaves from their rival in order to jumpstart their empire. This was the world that Ferdinand Magellan grew up in. Having caught the exploration bug in school, he joined the fleets of Portuguese sailors and traveled to India for the first time in 1505. It was an eight-year expedition whose purpose was to create a permanent Portuguese presence in India. Showcasing the fact that exploration and soldiering were really two sides of the same coin, Magellan got his first taste of the violence that was inherent in empire building via the conquering of Malacca, a portion of modern-day Malaysia. The arrival of the Portuguese had to have seemed to the Malaccans as though off-world beings had visited their homeland. Magellan was wounded in the 1506 Battle of Conore. In that engagement, the Portuguese emerged victorious against more than 200 enemy ships, despite the Europeans only having one caraval and three nos, which were four-masted ships. It wasn't a completely one-sided firefight, as the Indian fleet arrayed against them were a cosmopolitan crew made up of two Italians who had brought with them a number of cannons manned by their Hindu, Arab, and Turkish crews. It became known as the first modern naval battle and contributed to the viewpoint that ships were less carriers of men and more of weapons, floating artillery that could be used to extend their empire's reach. After capturing Malacca, which was known colloquially to Europe as the Gate of the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese viceroy ordered an expedition to the Malaccas, the famed islands which were perceived to be the origin point for the spice trade, which had already seen explorers like da Gama secure a 100% profit on their initial investments. One contemporary historian, Argensola, claims that Magellan was in charge of one of the mission's two separate failures to the Spice Islands. We know that Ferdinand was obsessed with these islands. We just aren't sure if he was chasing the tales told by his school teachers, or if they represented his own personal white whale, a quest which he obsessed over, even to the point of it resulting in his death. It's easy to understand why he would be so obsessed. Historian Lawrence Burgreen notes that if a sailor devoted years of his life to getting there and back, and if he managed to bring home a small sack stuffed with spices such as cloves or nutmeg, legitimately or not, he could sell it for enough to buy a small house. 
he could live off the proceeds for the rest of his life. A captain had a right to expect much more than that in the Age of Discovery. Not only vast riches and fame, but titles to pass on to his heirs and foreign lands to rule. In other words, a successful expedition would result in what we would refer to as generational wealth. Spanish historian Frederick Ober notes that we know little of the exploits of Magellan, but quite a bit about his friend Serrao, who made it to the Malaccas only to become shipwrecked after his boat had become so laden down with purchased goods. Ober teaches that the island upon which the unfortunate Portuguese sailors lost their vessel was uninhabited, save for pirates and wreckers who visited it occasionally to glean what the reefs had brought them. The morning after the disaster, as the Portuguese captain was looking out to the sea, he beheld a pirate pro approaching the island. He knew at a glance the character of the craft, and hiding with his men in a cave, awaited developments. Seeing the wreck on the reefs, the pirates landed for the purpose of finding the survivors, who they knew must be on the island. The pirates made a great mistake in going ashore in a body, leaving no one on board their craft. And Serrao and his men, who had hidden near the shore, silently swam off to the vessel and took possession without opposition. When the pirates found out what had been done, they were in dismay and promised the Portuguese anything if they would not leave them on that deserted island without food or water. Their prayers were granted, and together all sailed for Amboa, one of the Malaccas, where the Portuguese found favor with the king, and whence resided there for the next eight years, during which he wrote frequent letters to Magellan. Rather than staying in a foreign world of Southeast Asia, Magellan returned to his home nation, only to be rewarded with paltry honors, such as new titles and a stipend that paid out a measly dollar a month more for his time adventuring. He was also granted the right to design a new coat of arms, and had his pension doubled. It sounds nice, but the result of his life-risking adventures was that he returned to Portugal relatively poor. But Ober reveals that he did not stay for long, for to one who had sniffed the smoke of battle on many a field, who had participated in scenes attendant upon the extension of Portugal's great eastern empire, founding settlements, subjecting strange peoples, and erecting fortresses, country life was tame and uneventful. Thus, he soon took to the sea again, after an opportunity to once again tap into the dopamine that drove him presented itself. It was a revenge mission for the Portuguese rulers against African Morocco. He set sail in 1513 amongst a fleet of 400 ships. Ferdinand was one of 18,000 fighting men, the sight of which was enough for the Moors to come to terms without the loss of a single Portuguese sailor. But this proved to be only the initial encounter as Magellan was the first to notice a large army of Moors which had arrived across the desert after daring nighttime rides on fleets of fast-moving camels. It was Ferdinand who took the role of Paul Revere, 
riding back, shouting to his countrymen, the Moors, the Moors, the Moors are coming. Lacking the element of surprise, the intense fighting that followed eventually went Portugal's way, resulting in the capture of more than 1,000 prisoners. Ober writes that the booty was so vast that a special board was named to apportion it, and one of its members was Ferdinand Magellan, who, having been wounded by a lance thrust in the knee, was incapacitated for active service. This wound, in fact, which was received in a charge he led upon the Arab vanguard, was the cause of lameness during the remainder of his life, and ever after he walked with a perceptible limp. Winston Churchill informs us that a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Magellan had spent the vast majority of the past decades serving the king on missions that directly expanded his majesty's influence, power, and pockets. Twice he had been wounded, and once he had saved the entire operation from sure defeat through the bravery of his actions. Thus, he eagerly hastened home in order to request an increase in his monthly payments, believing that he had more than earned his place among the great captains whom he had looked up to as a schoolboy. But that wasn't the whole story, as part of the reason he left Northern Africa in haste was the sudden departure of his commander, a man who favored Magellan. The new boss, on the other hand, was said to have always hated the upstart Ferdinand, who had maintained an air of entitlement throughout the expedition against the Moors. Word traveled to the Lisbon court faster than Magellan, which told of a tale that was quite different from the heroic one spun by the explorer. Rather than departing with the goodwill granted to a hero, Ferdinand had been accused of theft. Both of the obtained booty and through pocketing the profits from illegally selling 400 goats to the Moors. In absentia, he had been labeled a deserter. Bergerine describes Ferdinand's audience with the king in the following manner, writing that he lectured the king, reminding him that he, Ferdinand Magellan, was a nobleman and had rendered lifelong service to the crown and had the wounds to show for it. Nothing but a more generous title would suffice to acknowledge his stature, his sense of honor, and his idealism. Jealous rivals whispered behind Magellan's back that his limp was merely an act designed to elicit sympathy. King Manuel's judgment, when it came, was swift and sure. The insolent and foolish Magellan was to return to Morocco immediately to face charges for treason corruption, and leaving the army without authorization. Only by returning to Africa was he able to obtain papers which spoke of his innocence and service. Unwilling to see that things weren't working out for him in Portugal, 
he stubbornly demanded another audience with the king to again ask for a raise and subsequent elevation of his station. It was the increase in notoriety that he sought above all else, limiting his raise request to just an additional 26 cents per month. He was again rejected by what turns out to have been a historically cheap king. It shouldn't have been a surprise, however, as the past's the single greatest predictor of the future. After all, Bartholomew Dias, the first man to reach the southernmost point of Africa, received practically no reward for his discovery of the Cape of Good Hope from King Zhao II. Ten years later, Vasco da Gama was shocked at the paltry rewards he had received from King Manuel I, believing that the position as the Viceroy of India was inadequate compensation for his service. The royal family's cheapness would come back to haunt the nation of Portugal. Burgreen tells us that Magellan was entering middle age, with a bad leg and an unfairly tarnished reputation. Teetering on the brink of poverty, he looked nothing like the aristocrat he thought himself to be and he still yearned to distinguish himself in the service of Portugal, to make a name for himself that would rank with the important figures of the day, the explorers who opened new trade routes for Portugal in the Indies, and in the process became rich themselves. Rather than relying on his past to earn his way, he came up with a scheme to once and for all earn the fame that he believed was his destiny. The scheme called for a western voyage to the famed Spice Islands, one which Magellan claimed would be far faster and therefore significantly more profitable than Portugal's established African route. But Magellan messed up two things, for his timing was as wrong as his choice for messenger as King Manuel, now 51 years old, had just spent the prior year attempting to raise his son to the throne, only to then decide to overthrow his child. To rub salt in the boy's wound, the elder king then went on to marry his son's fiancée, who was widely rumored to have continued on with an affair with the king's son. Burgreen describes the king in this moment as a deeply suspicious, unhappy, and conflicted man, a man determined to keep others from attaining fame and power. Three times Magellan asked the king to authorize and finance his voyage. Three times he was denied. Finally, in September of 1517, Ferdinand did the unthinkable, asking the king if he could offer his services elsewhere. To his astonishment, Manuel said yes. When Ferdinand knelt to kiss the king's hand as custom dictated, the bitter King Manuel hid them in his pockets and turned his back upon the man who had been his loyal servant. Portugal's loss would soon become Spain's gain. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. 
As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.